Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, we're back this week. I'm back with John Burnett. John, how are you? I'm great, Rob. I'm doing very good. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. John mentioned that you were at the SMRP last week. How did that go? It was very good. The uh, SMRP show, uh, the attendance has been getting larger and larger uh, uh, every year. More and more people are getting, uh, uh, are attending because they, uh, they're starting their journey to reliability. And so it was, uh, uh, it was a good show and a good meeting. And uh, our uh, keynote speaker was, um, was uh one of the uh, astronauts one of the the uh, twins and uh it was uh it was a good it was a good meeting so yeah no that's great i mean it's really good to hear that more people are are starting their reliability journey yep yep it was it was super and so uh yeah it's kind of uh you know after doing reliability for years and seeing the attendance of these shows getting bigger and stronger and and uh attendees are starting up programs and asking good questions it's really uh it uh it's good (laughs) yeah no it's great so i i guess you know like last time we had you on john we talked a little bit about vibration sensors And one thing I wanted to kind of reiterate that you mentioned last time was starting off with a criticality analysis to define what equipment gets kind of what predictive maintenance or not necessarily predictive maintenance, but what maintenance program. Do you want to give us a little more insight on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a great idea because... You know, a lot of times, um, you know, we start talking about uh, reliability and and, uh, proactive maintenance and, uh, you know, we, we talked last time about, uh, you know, sometimes it can get overwhelming. And, and so we need to we need to do some planning up front. And so just jumping in uh, to, uh, you know, let's say you had 5,000 machines. You sure don't want to start off with all 5,000 machines right off the beginning. And also not all 5,000 machines need the same care and have the same criticality. And, and, and uh, you know, not every, but every machine or asset needs um, you know, trending and condition-based maintenance, you know. So I think one thing that the criticality uh, analysis uh, or criticality survey will allow us to do is to help us identify, um, you know, which which assets 
um, really need uh, condition-based maintenance? Which ones uh, would do better just staying with a planned maintenance, a, a calendar-based maintenance? And and some machines uh, are probably just fine that uh, run to failure, reactive maintenance. So, um, and part of doing that is doing a criticality analysis so that you can, number one, figure out which machines are critical. And sometimes doing that analysis is an eye-opener because we find out machines we didn't think were critical. And we also may find out that some machines we thought were super critical really weren't that critical. And so the first step is to, to just sit down and go through and find out uh, which machines are critical. And that then helps us evaluate, you know, kind of where's our starting point uh, and kind of uh, prioritizes our machine. But then that helps us then get to what we really need to do, and that's to come up with a, a testing schedule for all of our machines. And so by going through this exercise, we learn uh, which machines um, we need to be uh, monitoring with uh, condition-based maintenance, uh, with uh, plan maintenance and reactive maintenance, and then also maybe set the schedules because not every machine may need to be done, um, you know, monthly um, or, uh, or or weekly or quarterly. You know, so let's it kind of helps us evaluate that. Absolutely, and and something last time that you mentioned that I think people took a little out of context was. You know, like when we're picking a sensor on obviously not A1 critical equipment, we're looking, we don't necessarily need real-time data that's all the time because the kind of the PF curve is is over a few months. And so like criticality helps us really dial that in, right? That's exactly right. And a lot of people have this misconception that we need to be continuously monitoring machines, that when we, when we talk 24-7 sensors, we're talking about getting continuous data and very few machines, uh, if any, really need continuous monitoring because you're exactly right. Over the years, I've watched uh, machine uh, faults uh, go from, uh, you know, a, a bearing could go from slight to moderate to serious to extreme over a 12 to 18 month period. So it's not even uh, daily that we need data. I mean, if we just had data even uh, weekly or monthly, that's, that's more than enough because a machine... Um, you know, I'll, I'll see a machine go from slight to moderate and stay in a moderate fault condition for months and months, maybe even a year or more before it gets into serious and extreme. And, it, and then it starts ramping up rapidly. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes back down to risk. And so, like, I've been kind of hammering this point for the last few months here is, is it, like, what's the, we need to define what's the risk of failure and that risk is not only just production risk, it's also safety and it's also kind of environmental risk. And that was something that, you know, just to, to call back to what you said about a couple of minutes ago there, when you do a criticality analysis, oftentimes you, you find out equipment that you didn't really think about becomes critical. And I'll give you two examples uh, from criticality analysis that I've done. And one of them was, obviously was a fire truck. So, you know, it was at a mine site. And so if the fire truck doesn't work, pretty much you have to stop operating or there's a huge safety risk. And then the other one was, uh, was the graders at the mine site. And so those really help maintain the roads 
so they're safe to operate on. And then if they're safe to operate on, you can also drive faster as production goes up. There's a bunch of different things there, but it's equipment that we might not have thought was, you know, priority one critical, but they turn out to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. So when you do a criticality analysis report, um, you know, we, we want to think about different um, factors and it isn't just the um, uptime, the lost production, the, uh, the maintenance cost of a, of a machine. We also want to think about uh, environmental concerns. We might, uh, we also want to think about health and safety and, and uh, you know, um, maybe uh, things like, uh, you know, the time that it would take to get somebody to come in and do that repair or have, uh, have somebody stay late for that repair. So, so there's a lot more factors to it than just uh, lost revenue and, uh, and, and maintenance cost. Absolutely. And so I guess, so last time we, we got a question on LinkedIn uh, from Luis Felipe Lima, and he was looking at, um, you know, you mentioned, or we kicked off last time with talking about the big defects in rotating equipment, which you had mentioned were imbalance, misalignment, looseness, and bearings. And Luis says, quote, that's perfect when we can get the tolerances of the vibration measurements in the manufacturer's data sheet. What would you consider to use when it's not within vendor documentation? That's that's right. So um, good good point because um, actually very seldom are you going to find any tolerances in in uh, um, the manufacturer's um, manuals or any any of their materials. So uh, there, there's a couple of things. Um, one is there are uh, you know some ISO standards. Um, you know, example is, uh, you know, ISO 10816, which is now uh, ISO 2816. But those ISO standards are very, very general in that uh, they're based on all, all rotating machinery. And the categories are really broken up uh, by just the, the size of a machine, small, medium, large, and large with a, uh, with a uh, flexible foundation. But, you know, so that isn't very specific to your specific machine. So there are other standards out there. So, for example, um, one of the standards that we use in our um, our vibration screening tool is based on overall vibration levels that uh, came from uh, from a, a vibration consulting firm, um, you know, years and years and years ago, where they've done some, you know, let's let's already look at what vibration experts have already done. So over the past twenty five or thirty years, these vibration experts have have analyzed hundreds of thousands of different machines and they've categorized what overall vibration level should be for thirty seven different machine categories. And so for example, they have a, you know, what's good uh satisfactory unsatisfactory or unacceptable what the vibration levels would be for certain care you know like a like a recip compressor or a uh or a chiller or a uh a vertical pump or a um or a belt driven fan so 
you know, the vibration levels uh, can be different for for each of those different categories. So we don't want to we don't want to compare uh, the overall vibration level uh, across the board to all machines because uh, the vibration level is going to be different on a on a vertical uh, centrifugal pump as it is going to be for a uh, a screw compressor, for example. So that's that's one example is just using overall vibration. Now, looking at the spectral data, the, the high resolution data, you know, that's that's more than just, you know, overall vibration is just one number. That's pretty easy. Um, but if you want to get into the spectral data, then we need to look at what vibration experts have done. And and there's there's in my mind, there's there's two ways that you can analyze uh you know spectrum from a machine one is you can go through years of training and become a vibration expert and you can analyze it yourself um but there are some auto diagnostic tools out there that based on the history of what vibration experts have analyzed because if you think about it you know looking at those standard faults of imbalance misalignment bearings and looseness those patterns are pretty common and if you think about standard machines like motors, pumps, fans, compressors, blowers, you know, those machines, you know, run at basically the same speed for, you know, quite a long time and they don't have a lot of change to them. So, so vibration experts over the past 30 years have built, um, you know, baselines of, of what a, a, a typical 50 horsepower uh, AC motor driving a centrifugal pump um, with, um, you know, through a coupling, you know, and, and so if we know those basic baselines and, and can do some, uh, some, uh, um, some setups with that, then, uh, then we don't have to do the analysis. But, but yeah, so let's look at what, what, what some vibration experts have already done. And let's use that uh, to try to at least make part of our job easier. Absolutely. And I guess one thing I wanted to, we well, one thing we got feedback on last time was that, you know, overall vibration doesn't necessarily tell us what the problem is. It just tells us that there is a problem. Some of the feedback I heard was, you know, people were saying, well, we should be using, you know, fast Fourier transform or band alarms to kind of determine what the actual failure mechanism is. Do you want to break those down for us? Yes, exactly. That's that's a great idea. So if you think about it, overall vibration is like your check engine light in your car. It really is just saying that, hey, there's something wrong and you need to do some further testing. Nothing more, nothing less. The same thing with overall vibration. All it's telling us is that there's either a lot of vibration uh, so something could be wrong or vibration is very low and compared to other similar machines, that low vibration indicates that there's probably nothing wrong. And so if you're doing kind of a risk assessment, if the overall vibration is low, that means we can probably skip that machine because it's probably healthy. Yeah, a high a high vib overall vibration means that there's potentially something wrong. We need to take, do some further testing. So. So the further testing would be that we need to take some some high resolution, some spectral data. And in this, so if you if you think about it from a medical standpoint, overall vibration would be like your uh, like the pulse uh, that the that the nurse checks, which is just a number, and then uh, the uh, high resolution spectral data is like an EKG that a nurse takes. 
or the, sorry, that a doctor takes. And so the doctor uh, with years of experience has learned how to look at those EKGs. And so the high resolution spectral data that we can see on rotating machinery allows us to be able to dig in deeper. And uh, the overall vibration isn't gonna give us enough information to know whether the machine has imbalance, misalignment, looseness, bearings, or another fault where the high resolution data will because the high resolution data we're going to take uh, over a large frequency range. We're going to look at each of the individual peaks, not just average them all together. Um, we're going to diag- we're going to analyze um, what the vibration that's coming from the rotating shaft and the components on the shaft. And so we need to know what the sources are to some of the main vibration peaks so that we can look at the data. And in addition, we're going to look at the data and compare the data from the motor bearings to the pump da- pump bearings to kind of find out where the where the fault might be coming from. And also we're going to take it in three directions. Uh, vertical, horizontal, and axial, so that we can uh, know whether the fault is uh, uh, imbalance or misalignment. So all of all of the spectral data, and by knowing the patterns of what a fault uh, you know comes from, allows vibration analysts to be able to go in and diagnose the uh, EKG like a doctor would, and to tell you what the fault is, and then give a diagnosis of how to fix it. And John, so if like, are those another sensor that you would give us? Or is that like somebody going out to the machine with a, you know, like the handheld vibration meter? Yeah. So when we talked earlier, we were talking about using uh, wireless uh, vibration sensors that would give us just overall vibration. Um, And so that think of that as just a screening tool to kind of warn us and our, our handheld vibration uh, screening tool. Again, those uh, quick and easy uh, tools are just to give us uh, um, uh, an, an alarm that something is wrong. You're right, If when you go out to take measurements to get the spectral data, then we're using, um, you know, triaxial or, or or a single axis accelerometer that's measuring uh, the uh, uh, FFT, the fast Fourier transformation. And it's typically going to take, you know, 30 seconds to a minute to collect the data instead of just one second to get the overall vibration. So it's, it's going to take longer and uh, to be able to get that data, it's going to take, you know, so it's not something that we would, typically want to be sending uh, wirelessly because if you think if it takes 30, 30 to, to 60 minute, uh, 60 seconds to collect the data, that that's a pretty good chunk of data. And that's going to take quite a bit to try to transfer over, uh, over Wi-Fi. So that's probably going to be done by a portable data collector. Absolutely. And, and I guess something to like relate back to what we started off, right, is, is, if, if we start with a criticality analysis and we start understanding the risk of failure, that's when we can decide whether or not we, de- we, de- we want to go with either the sensors or if we want to do like a manual route where the guy goes out with the vibration meter or how we kind of dial in what we do. Like let's say we decide to go with sensors 
and we get a fault on the overall vib vibration, do, do is it risky enough or does that failure cost us enough that we would want to send a guy out to troubleshoot it or do we just change out the pump or whatever component it is? That's that's exactly right because we want to we need to manage our time and we are all doing um, you know uh, having to do more with with less resources and so um, we sure don't want to have to be able to go out and take this high resolution data that takes a lot of time and takes uh, some analysis on every machine uh, every you know every day it just it just isn't worth all of that so we. So that's why we do a criticality analysis is so that we can find out, hey, what machines uh, would get by with just uh, a simple screening to just know is it good or bad and, and uh, or which machines uh, do I need to take uh, monthly or quarterly uh, spectral data and analysis, which machines do I need to take data more frequently that are critical enough that I want to take data even maybe on a weekly basis. And, you know, some machines uh, are so critical that you want to collect data almost continuously. So you're right that it all depends on the criticality. And that was something that you mentioned last time was, you know, you, when you were, you, when you were working on the aircraft carrier that you had like continuous monitoring on the main turbine. Do you want to kind of break that down for us where you would say like, okay, you know, critical main turbine, we want continuous, but is there any piece of equipment that we would want to do like a combination of the, you know, the sensors plus a vibration or, or do we just go right to either the sensors or a manual route? Yeah, it's usually uh, a combination and a blend across the plant. So just like you would have a blend of of uh, condition-based maintenance and planned maintenance and reactive maintenance, it's also going to be a blend of the um, continuous monitoring with portable monitoring with uh, remote wireless sensors and and so again it depends on your plan so if you think about the uh the main turbine um you know on a on a ship or a main turbine in a power plant you know that machine is critical enough that it probably has uh one or two people that that uh that's their full-time job is to maintain that uh the one or two turbines and you know you're getting continuous monitoring on that machine uh and that uh expert is just is basically babysitting that machine because it's just so important it's a star athlete it's the one you got to be watching and and uh you know in addition you probably are collecting data you know every uh, millisecond uh, almost because you want to be able to to, to know whether there's something going on with that machine because you want to shut it down uh, within uh, so many milliseconds. So much, much different than, uh, than uh, the rest of the machines. And, and then you have to think about it. In most plants, there are going to be three or four different tiers of, of, of different machine types based on their criticality, their, their uh, complexity, uh, their, uh, you know, safety environmental concerns. So if you think about it, the top of the, of the machine pyramid would be your tier one assets would be like your turbine, which is basically you, you've got uh, a dedicated person or staff that are watching that 
those uh, those few machines. And then below that would be your uh, your tier two machines. And those are the machines like, you know, boiler feed pumps and, uh, um, you know, there you know, there's some uh, hydraulic pumps or some there's some pumps that have to keep that main turbine going that are very important that we're going to be probably keeping a pretty close eye on because if that machine goes down, then the turbine goes down. So even though you might not have continuous monitoring on them, you're sure going to be collecting data at least on a monthly basis with your high resolution spectrum. And you might even have some uh, some some vibration sensors on that. Then we move down a level to tier three, which are your the rest of the machines in your plant, which are still going to be critical, you know, water pumps, compressors, chillers, um, fans, and that kind of stuff. Which you know, a lot of these machines aren't going to have the uh, the experts watching. This is what the maintenance team has to keep running, but. These are the machines that are their bread and butter, and these are the machines that uh, break down all the time and they're having to fix. So these machines, at a minimum, you would want to have remote sensors on so that we can start being able to know and getting alarms on which ones are good or bad because we just don't have the the, the, the resources to handle all these machines. And, and so based on the alarming, then that would then signal it's time to go in with a portable analyzer or a vibration tester to find out what the the fault is. So, so again, uh, you know, maybe the sensor uh, is a screening tool that tells us, hey, this uh, machine has a problem. So, of the 500 machines you have, you know which one or two to go do your uh, your spectrum on. So, no, yeah, that's great. And and I guess I kind of want to ask you about like like when you're, when someone's using a portable analyzer like what does that process look like because you know i i spent a lot of time on the oil analysis kind of lube side and you know like the process for that is someone goes out they take a sample from the equipment they send the sample into you know fluid life as the lab we do the processing and then they get a you know they get their report back and then somebody who ideally has you know some lube training looks at that and kind of makes an interpretation about it. How is that similar or different to the vibration on the, at least on a portable analyzer side? It's the, the process is, is pretty much the same on any type of a, of a test you're going to take. So from a vibration standpoint, um, you would uh, have somebody um, with a vibration analyzer who, who would have, um, uh, you know, they, they've, probably have an assignment that day of saying, you know, I need you to go out and uh, take a measurement from from these machines. And that could either be, you know, planned or it could be based on maybe uh, somebody has reported that there's a, a noise going on with a machine or maybe somebody has reported that, hey, we have an alarm from one of our, one of our screening sensors. And so whatever, whatever the, 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 this, the, the cause may be of, of why we're out there collecting data. So you would walk out to a machine and the first thing that, uh, that an analyst would do was, uh, number one, make sure the machine is running and make sure the machine is running at its normal operating conditions because we don't want to test a machine that's uh, in some type of an abnormal condition. Um, so uh, do a quick check and when, the, when we're sure the machine is running uh, and, it's, and it's a good point to take a test, then you would use a, a vibration sensor, either a single channel 
or a triaxial sensor and you'd mount that uh, on the bearing of uh, of each bearing on the machine. So let's say there's a bearing on the motor, uh, you'd collect data from each motor bearing. It would take about a about a minute to collect data. And so you would it would take, you know, several minutes as you took data from the, the two motor bearings and then from the two pump bearings. And then when you get done taking the data, it takes, you know, maybe five, 10 minutes, you would, uh, you would take that data back to your uh, office and uh, you would uh, then look at that data on a on a computer screen, and you would, uh, you know, either by using some type of a screening, either an automated diagnostic tool, or maybe using uh, narrow band alarming um, that would uh, would look at the data and screen out uh, some uh, patterns or anomalies in the data, and then you would uh, review the results, and then based on what you found, and maybe based on uh, on your experience with that machine or based on what that machine has shown in the past, you would then make a, a recommendation on whether that machine uh, uh, is okay to leave alone or whether it needs to be scheduled for repair or whether you need to send out an emergency message to somebody to shut the machine down because it's getting too bad. And then you generate a work order and maybe go do some work on it. Yeah, no, that's, it sounds pretty good. I guess one more thing I want to kind of dig a little deeper into is the alarming. And so just I'll give you a little background on like what we do on the oil analysis side is we take a sample and we, you know, we, we lump it in with a group of similar samples. So if it's a gearbox from a, you know, from a power plant, we, we lump it with similar samples, so other gearboxes and other power plants. And then we kind of look at where it lies, obviously for each test, but where it lies relative to its peers. And then another thing we do is we look at the trend. So we look at where that sample lies based on the last 10 samples of that specific equipment. And then those two things kind of roll together and form like a, kind of our basic alarm criteria. How does it work for vibration data? So, yeah, the vibration data is very similar in that we we want to analyze and and do a comparison between similar machines because um, you know that's the easy the the easy way to be able to do a comparison. And if you think about it, um, if you've got the the same motor pump. Um, and there's five or six of them, well, then why don't we look at the uh, information from the other motor pumps that are, that are exactly the same? Because the idea would be um, if you see a pattern. So vibration analysis is all about pattern, pattern recognition, pattern analysis. So we, we know what the patterns are for the, main, the, the faults, imbalance, misalignment, uh, bearings, looseness, and all of the other faults. And in our vibration test, I think there's like 4,700 different diagnostic rules in there. So, so there, so over the you know past 30, 40 years, we've 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 analyzed and, and diagnosed hundreds of thousands of machines and have come up with these with the patterns. So, um, so it really is a lot about pattern recognition. Now, there's a couple of ways that you could uh, use your pattern recognition is 
you know, you could trend it over time. And so for screening, uh, for overall vibration, we do some trending. Um, but uh, trending means that you have to do, uh, uh, number one, you need to know what's good and what's bad. And sometimes you don't know that. Uh, also, trending means that we need to know, um, you know, is it already in a, in, a, in a bad position and what is the threshold? So, so knowing those threshold levels, knowing when, when, when the machine is good or bad, is, that's, that's the secret. And so for looking at the high-resolution spectral data and because we got to look at patterns and because there's so much uh, noise and other resonances coming from other machines, and there's really two ways that we can do this. One is we can... We can do manual analysis each and every time where a seasoned, experienced vibration expert would look at the data, uh, analyze it, compare it to last month's data, compare it to before that, and would basically build a, a baseline, um, you know, kind of on the fly and would do the analysis manually. But that takes a lot of experience, a lot of time, a lot of training. There's nothing wrong with that. And on some machines, that's the way we want to do it. Uh, another way that we could do that is like you had mentioned, and that is comparing to like machines. So, so if you if we've already analyzed hundreds of thousands of similar types of motor pumps, and we've seen what the patterns and the baselines have been on those machines, then why don't we take some of that knowledge and 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 build a statistical baseline? of what a group of similar machines would look like. And we can use that as a way to, if nothing else, screen out whether a machine is healthy or not without having to spend a lot of time manually analyzing every set of data from every machine. Awesome. No, that was that was a great answer. And so I guess a couple more questions and we'll get you out of here. And so the one of those questions is, like you've been around doing vibration for a long time. And what mistakes do people make when either setting up their vibe program or looking at vibration data? I think one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen is people that uh, overreact to faults in that what I mean by that is, is you'll have um, a slight or moderate bearing wear show up and instead of just saying, hey, that's only slight or moderate, it's nothing to worry about because, uh, but they'll start uh, freaking out. And, and so I've seen a lot of customers say, oh my goodness, I've got a, a slight motor bearing wear. What am I going to do? Well, the answer to a slight motor bearing wear is do nothing because there's months or even years left of life in that. And you know, there's really nothing to do. It's not till you get too serious or extreme that you want to do anything. So the biggest thing I see is people overreact to a fault. Um, and uh, you should be uh, reacting to uh, the recommendation. And so if it's not that bad, don't worry about it. Because, and another thing, is I see a lot of people, they automatically assume that if a machine is making noise that it must have high vibration and if it's making if it has a lot of vibration then it must have a fault and if it has a fault then it, there must be something that needs to be done and and those are those are all false because just because a machine is making noise 
doesn't mean there's a vibration. The noise could be coming from something that's perfectly normal in that machine, and that noise could be normal. So the vibration, you know, uh, doesn't, uh, noise doesn't have to be vibration. And just because a machine is vibrating doesn't mean it has a fault. A machine could be vibrating. It could be uh, um, a background. It could be uh, from another machine. It could be the vibration from the, uh, uh, from uh the uh, flow or the operation. So just because there's vibration doesn't mean you have a fault. And then finally, just because you have a fault doesn't mean it's time to do the repair. So uh, we, we want to watch the fault, watch the fault as it gets worse. And then eventually, once the risk gets high enough and we think that we've taken that risk to about as far as we can, then we need to fix it. So, so just kind of a little bit of real world and a little bit of common sense uh, can go a long ways when you're, uh, when you're looking at your results. And would you say that's because of like a lack of training or is that just a lack of experience? Oh uh, yeah, probably training and and experience both. But but uh, you know the the main thing when somebody starts up a new vibration program is um, a lot of times that they'll see uh, no fault with with eighty uh, percent of their machines, and then uh, they it's almost like they're waiting for a fault. They're waiting for something to happen so they can uh, so they can say that oh look I I found one you know so. Hey, if if eighty percent of your machines are healthy and you're not hearing anything, then that's good. You know that means you don't have to do any work. And so, you know, let's not make a make a problem when one doesn't exist. So, yeah, it's it's a little bit of uh, you know just kind of uh, some training and experience and just kind of waiting and and uh, you know um, and there's a lot more to it than than just what vibration is going to tell you, you know, you might, you know, one of the biggest things is when, when a machine is making some vibration or may, or, and, and, and you have a fault that shows up, walk out to the machine and, and listen to it. And, and you may find out that maybe somebody is operating that machine uh, at a speed or, or, uh, or uh, in a condition where it shouldn't be. So it may have nothing to do with the fault in the machine. It could be just the way the machine is being run. So, you know, just look and listen and, and feel and, and look at the other indications. <laughs> yeah, no, John, you just mentioned a kind of a hot button issue that I have is I always I always say the same thing is it's it, it still surprises me how often when I go to plants and I walk around just the things that you see that, you know, the, either the reliability person or the maintenance uh you know, engineer hasn't, didn't know about or hasn't seen. And I always, I always tell them, I'm like, you, you need to walk around your plant, like at least on a monthly basis, but probably more than that, just to, just to see like, what's general housekeeping look like? Did, you know, did something fail? And like, like one time we walked out looking for a pump and you walk up to it and there's just two pipes and a hole in the middle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, and I, a lot of the uh, um, maintenance managers and chief engineers that we've worked with over the years, uh, they say that one of the best uh, things of getting up, uh, starting a reliability or a vibration program is it gets their people out into their plant, uh, walking around and looking and listening to machines and just, just doing that. Sometimes you can figure out what the problems are. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And And one thing I also just want to mention is, you know, like we've been talking about vibration, but there's, 
like predictive maintenance, we should be looking at multiple technologies because each one's kind of do different things and they also detect, you know, different failure modes at different spots on the PF curve, right? So you really like start off with your criticality analysis or if you're lucky enough to do a full RCM um, start there, that'll really define kind of the risk and the failure modes that you need to be looking at. And then you can pick your predictive maintenance technology, whether that's vibration sensor, vibration analyzer, oil analysis, you know, thermography, motor current, whatever that is, and then really build it, you know, build it out. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree because I've seen one of a, a big mistake that a lot of customers do is they just pick one technology and they try to test everything with it. And they think that, uh, hey, now I'm doing predictive maintenance and uh, there really is an overlap. And, and uh, you know, vibration analysis does a, a great job on rotating machinery, but then, you know, you, you're not going to find all the electrical faults. So you need to have an electrical tool to find the electrical faults. And, you know, we need to use thermography because it's good for f helping us find electrical and mechanical faults. And so you really need to use more than just one tool. I mean, what was that old saying that uh, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail and, and it's, you know, the same problem. We need to use more than just one, one tool. We need to pick, use the right tool for the right, uh, the right expected failure mode. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And so, John, you know, thanks for coming on again. Um, just so everyone, I guess I'll reiterate it. So this episode was sponsored by Fluke. And, you know, to find more about either John or, you know, some of Fluke's products, go to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash Fluke. Those, that link will be in the podcast notes. Uh, John, are you going to be at any more conferences this year or is there anywhere that people can find you? You know, I think I'm kind of done traveling uh, for the rest of the year. Uh, you know, um, things are kind of slowing down now. So I think it's time to uh, kind of get ready uh, for next year, take some time off and uh, get some rest for the holidays. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, best way to get a hold of me is probably just through, uh, you know, a fluke uh, through our website or through our uh through these podcasts or, uh, or send me an email. Yeah, no, it's, it's all, I mean, it's November, we're recording this November 1st. So, you know, it's, it, it, the holidays are creeping up on us. Yeah, that's right. Awesome. So, you know, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to learn more again, ascendoreliability.com slash go slash fluke. Uh, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform. John, thank you for sharing your expertise with us. 